0: The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, center, and source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Well, I want to say welcome again, everybody, to Indian Springs. Uh, What a blessing it is to be here on this campground. Tonight, if you have your Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And I believe it's worth the time for us to read the first chapter. The theme is the hope, the hope of his caller in chapter 1, verse 18. But maybe that doesn't tell you unless you took the time or had the time to read the, the rest of the verse to see the context, to see what God is talking or Paul is talking about um, in that passage. So, uh, I'm going to share that with us. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn. Let me tell you what, what the sort of the context is. It is that Paul is who wrote to the church at Ephesus because he planted this church before. But guess where Paul is? He's not in Ephesus. He's in Rome, in prison. And that's when he writes this letter to the believers at um, at Ephesus. He also, just you probably already know this, Ephes- Ephesians, also um, Philippians and Colossians were churches that he had been And he, he wrote to all of those from prison. And he... Uh, Always, Paul is really methodical. Paul, in the first parts of his letters, the book, or the letter, Paul is doctrinal. He talks about Jesus and the doctrine of, of the why, you know, what we believe. But then in the second half of the book, or uh, the, the, the latter chapters of each of those letters, he is practical. He says, okay, those first two or three chapters, like in Ephesians, the first three chapters are doctrine. The last three are now, let's move forward, practice. Like, for example, in the first part of um, chapter 3, he says, walk worthy. You know, I already told you about Jesus, which we're about to read. Walk worthy, be filled with all the fullness of God, put on the whole armor of God, a lot of passages that we know, correct? Those are, those are the practical parts. So let's begin with the first one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And do you know what? One version that I read said the word apostle, they sort of put in parentheses, a special agent. I like that because I like it. You know, I love to fight against the devil and I feel like it's like being a spy or a special agent you know, for Jesus somewhere. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. to, here he is who he's writing to. That's like, you know, dear, the salutation, dear to God's holy people in Ephesus the faithful in Christ Jesus. So these are people that are already believers. That's important for us to know later. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, I love that part. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. That's a long sentence, isn't it, sisters? And a lot of his are long sentences. Keep, we're going to keep going. Verse seven. In him, in Jesus, this is all about Jesus. He's just loving Jesus and telling telling them that it's all because of Jesus. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order, I like the way Paul does this, in order, that means so that, because of that, the reason is in order that we, or so that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let me stop there for just a second. Verse 14, see that? who says, who is a deposit? Your version might say a down payment or an installment, a first installment, and so in my brain I sort of think about maybe a bank kind of a thing, a down payment on a house or something. So I thought, if the Holy Spirit is only the down payment, how glorious must um, must what God have for us be? Okay, so that's the first part of chapter one. It's all about Jesus, and now it's still about Jesus, but now beginning in verse where are we? Fifteen. He's going to begin to pray. So, because of what Jesus has done for us, just because of what we just read, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that, the purpose is not just for you, so that you may know him better. Here's our verse, 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order, the reason is, so that you may know the hope of his calling. What is the hope of his calling? That's our theme. Then there's a comma. It doesn't end there. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. It doesn't end there. There's another comma. And his uh, incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's amazing. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead we can have. There was a comment there, verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is in book, not only in the present name, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, that's us. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So, I know that you feel the same as I do. I want to be filled in every way by the Holy Spirit. And Paul just wants to talk about Jesus. He wants He wants to testify. And we see that here in that in the very first part of that chapter. He's just saying exactly who Jesus is and what he has done, reminding the Christians, the believers like you and me, because now he's going to keep going on and don't have time tonight, but he's going to keep going on and talk about them being filled with the Holy Spirit and having the testimony of that. And, um... And I loved what um, Brie said earlier. Thank you, Brie, wherever you went. Thank you for sharing testimony. Because as Stacy mentioned, in the book of Revelation, John wrote, and he said, the way we beat the devil, the way we overcome him is two things. First is the blood of the Lamb, what Jesus did for us on the cross. The second is the word of our testimony. And, um, and when we hear somebody else's testimony, and even when we share our own, it builds our faith, doesn't it? And um, Paul wrote, wrote something similar to Timothy. He said, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Later on, he was writing to, to Timothy, his son in the Lord. And um, Peter did something similar. Peter said, sanctify the Lord in your heart and be ready always to give a reason or an answer for the hope that is in you. There's our word, our word again, hope. Always be ready to tell other people why you have hope in, um, in Jesus. But... As I was really even thinking and praying over tonight, I thought, but we can't really share that hope with others if we haven't experienced it, can we? The good news for us this weekend is that he, Jesus, is so available to each one of us. And um, a favorite verse of mine, because it's something that really helped me, is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. Probably most of us have verse 11 memorized. I, you know, we see it on posters or on bookmarks and Christian bookstores, which is wonderful about God having plans for us, plans to prosper plans for the future, and a hope. And I praise God for that. But if you come on down a couple of verses, verse 13 says this. God says, you will search for me and you will find me. That's the good part, is finding him when, when, sort of a the contingency there, when you search for me with all your heart. Now, uh, many of you grew up in a holiness family and in a church that preached and taught holiness. Praise Jesus for that. Probably many um, did not. I did not. Um, um, I had never heard that my heart could be clean or never seen or understood um, these words. Can you see them from there where you are? It's just above the altar. Holiness unto the Lord. I didn't see that growing up. Although, although in church on Sunday, because I was always in church, I little Methodist church, and I'm very thankful for that, because I, I was saved, I knew about Jesus. But we sang, "Holy, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty." Um, I knew I knew that by heart, but I didn't understand what holy even meant or what this this phrase, holiness unto the Lord. If you if you saw any um, images from Hughes Auditorium at the revival at Asbury. If you have never been there, you would have seen this um, also above the uh, what's it called the organ pipes is uh, those same words holiness unto the Lord to live holy unto Him. So um, um, I thought maybe tonight I might be like or some of you might be like me. Maybe even grew up in a Christian home, which I'm very thankful for, and and I knew that I was saved. My parents were believers, but we had never heard this message that we teach and preach here as well as uh, not just in indian springs but uh, it's, it's just the word of god but, but i didn't see it before so um i wanted to share just a little and some of you make your life made. Um again i was a believer and i was baptized and joined the church but you know um then as maybe a teenager i really wanted to know god and his word so we would go away to youth camps youth retreats something like this ladies' retreat you know, and I would come back and even reading my Bible I began to see just in my personal devotion I thought well my life is not like Jesus but I know I'm saved but I would read words like sanctify and pure purge and cleanse and wash be whiter than snow there's another song we say isn't it and, and um, I didn't know I just thought that meant salvation. I was ignorant I was, I, I, I was naive I did I just was uninformed I didn't know Now it grew was very rural and very small. So we didn't have enough money for a full-time pastor. Our pastors were always students. Now, that's not a bad thing, but what is bad is that people, students were coming from states all over the United States, I mean all over the Union, came into the Atlanta area, which I was out of the country, but in Atlanta was the closest big city, and that was the closest seminary. And again, I was was very ignorant. I did not know that there was a difference between a conservative, really Bible-believing seminary, and that some were liberal. I had no concept of that. I just thought that the preacher is the authority, and what they say is the truth, and that's what they're learning in school. And that's true, that's what um, the guys were learning. They would would come from another state to go to the the seminary during the week, and on the weekend they would come and try to share with the congregation something that they had learned in the class. And unfortunately, again, it was a very, it is today, a very, very liberal United Methodist seminary. Very, very sad. But I didn't know that. So I would take my Bible and go up and say, well, here here for example, here's this example that really, really uh, convicted me. Remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he prays, and he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. So I read that in the Bible, just on my own, And I thought, I was convicted. I thought, I don't forgive people like that. I mean, on the outside, I'm going to be nice to you, but let's just pretend that Ron and I play basketball against each other, you know, because I play basketball. And so maybe she had blocked a really important shot of mine. <laughs> I wouldn't be ugly to her. So on the inside, in my heart, I thought, oh, if she had not brought my shot, we would have won that game, you know? So there was that little grudge there. And, and so I was convicted. So I go to the pastor and said, look, Jesus didn't do that. So my life is not like Jesus. But do you know what he said to me? He patted me on the back and said, oh, joy. You're the best person we know, and I was good. I was good morally. I was a good student. I was a good athlete, but goodness doesn't get us anywhere. He said, Oh, you're the best that we know, and this is just a emotional moment, and you'll feel different tomorrow. Isn't that pathetic? But that's what he was being taught. He did not know anything beyond that, because trust me, that's, still, that, 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 that's not taught. It's not like an Asbury, our West Biblical <laughs> And so, but I didn't know that. I didn't know there was an Asbury. I didn't know any of that at the time. But I knew that I didn't believe that what he said was true. But I keep plugging along when I finished high school and leave college because I didn't know about an Asbury at the time. And then I actually thought, well, maybe the way you figure this out is to go for a preachers learn about the Bible. You know, and I, I I just thought, that's what I want to know about. So I applied to that school because it was the closest and the only one that I knew of, and I became a student there. And um, unfortunately, very quickly—I mean, the second day that I was there, I was in a class about Paul. We just—we just, we just um, read what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. So this this class was called the theology of Paul, the Apostle Paul. So the professor, every day, didn't read from English. He had a Bible out there, and it was the original. He read from the Greek every day, the letters of Paul. But the rumor was that this guy was an atheist. And even the more liberal people thought, that can't be true. I mean, how could this guy be here? But the bottom line is, we finally got got a guy to raise his hand. It was like a blood covenant kind of thing. We said, we almost, we swear, if you will ask the question, because we're all afraid to ask. He said, if you will ask the question, if he fails you, we swear, we will all go down. We'll all take the F, because we all wanted to know, but nobody had the courage to ask. So the day comes, the guy's name is Steve. The day comes, he raises his hand, and he hem-hawed around for a little while, and then he finally got the word atheist out of his mouth to the professor. And the professor did not blink. He didn't take a breath. He instantly, so, he, just, he just said, that's absolutely true. And everyone, gasped And everybody, oh, like your favorite. Lightning's ghost. People are saying, how can you be teaching in a theological seminary and being an atheist? And, and he said, oh, it's very easy, two reasons. Number one, he cursed, which I won't do, of course, but he said, this is a very prestigious school, and I make a blank of a lot of money. Number two, I've taught here for years. I have tenure, they can't get rid of me. Just a sad reality, but that was that long ago how horrific a United Methodist seminary was. And that was just sort of like the tip of the iceberg. But the point is, that wasn't helping me spiritually. But I was only there just a few couple of weeks and at night, I was playing on a softball team, a women's team, and we had, we had made it all the way to the championship. But, so I to, you know baseball. Even if you don't play softball, you know. Anyway, here was the thing. It, this was like Game 7 of the World Series. It was the big championship. So, it really was the do or die play. It was the bottom of the ninth inning. My team was winning by one. We were up on one run, and we had two outs on the other team. So, we only needed one more out to win everything. Okay? So, you got the scenario? So we're in the field and, of course, we're just hoping for the easy out. that She'll strike out and um, and then we'll leave we'll win. Um, or we're hoping for an easy a dribble in the infield, you know, when we throw her out and we win. Or an easy pop fly, that's easy, catch the ball and we win. Here's the complication I didn't tell you a second ago. The thing that made it even more difficult is that there were runners on second and third base. Second and third, yeah. See, y'all get it, right? So if there's any kind of a hit, if the ball gets through the infield, that third base runner's going, she's not just gonna tie the game, second base runner's going and they're gonna win. So if there is a hit, we lose. If we can get her out, we win. Real easy. (laughs) I mean, sounds easy. So, So we're in the field and hoping for the easy out, and of course the worst thing that could have happened to us happened, it was great for the other team, the ball was thrown, the runners are going, and the batter just did a beautiful connection. I mean, it was great for them, horrible <laughs> for us. And it's just a big uh, line drop headed straight for the ground. I'm like a bullet or a rocket, just, and there was no way anybody thought anybody could get to the ball. But others began to run, too, but it was coming straight toward me, and I ran as fast as I could, and I dove in on purpose, like you're diving in or sliding into first base, on, on my front, chest, and legs, you know, just there, just trying to get to the ball. Because I'm right-handed, so it's my left hand and the glove, trying to get to it. The good news is, guess what? I caught the ball, and we won. I mean, that's the good news. The bad news is that when I hit the ground, even though I hit on my front, it ripped everything away from the bone in my back, and I was instantly paralyzed. Yes, <laughs> really bad. And so, um, I mean, either they took me to all the doctors there. This went on for weeks and weeks and months and months. I get sent to different specialists all over uh, sort of the southern part of the country, then out west, uh, north, many different specialists. But the bottom line was, there was just nothing that anybody could do. And so, um, nothing changed from that moment, just that moment there on the ground, um, for a year and a half, 18 very long months for me. Um, so my mama made a pallet, I mean, like a blanket or a quilt, so there on the floor, and um, they fed me with a straw, and then I couldn't move, so somebody had to stay with me all the time and put a bed pen under me, so it was very embarrassing and humiliating really and depressing, because um, I just couldn't move. What that meant was that everything on the inside of my body was in the wrong place. About a year later, after going to all the doctors, in addition to them saying, you'll never be able to walk again, They said, you'll never be able to them. You know, it's just not possible. Not really so so it was a very sad time. But guess what Jesus did? Because while I was laying there on the, on the floor, I know that it, it hurt. It was deep pain constantly. And, and I know that people knew that. And people were very sad for me, and you know, you had your whole life ahead of you, and now it's all gone. And that that seems true as far as physically goes. But all they told me, deep in my heart, The the thing that just kept daunting me, I thought, I'll never be able to get up physically and go find somebody that can help me spiritually. Because I thought, there has to be more, but I don't know what that more is. So the sweet thing is that after about a year in my little Methodist church, for the first time ever, instead of a little student pastor, guess what? We got this really old, retired pastor. I mean, he was very old to me, he was like a grandpa age to me. He was retired and he moved back near that community and was willing to come and serve my little country church. The the ones that helped me so much are in heaven now. Um, and but I'm so indebted to him because he has be a good pastor and wife, and they were going to see the shut ins and going to the nursing home and going to the hospitals and distant church members, you know, as they came and then came to see me. So I'm laying there, and so he comes in and, and I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna tell him the truth because he said, Well, how are you? So I said, I looked up and said, I'm miserable. So I said I'm miserable, that's a negative thing. But this sweet old man looked down at me with this big smile on his face and said, oh, that's good. So you laughed, but I'm telling you, I thought, bless his heart, he's so old, he senile. This understand that, that being miserable is a thing, you know, or a bad thing, it's not good. Or he's hard of hearing, that's very possible. So I yelled up and said, no sir, did you hear me? I said I'm miserable. Now from here on, sisters, I want to tell you that everything I share is just straight out of the word of God and it's how he helped me to understand why we are here, why there's holiness unto the Lord here, why Indian Springs Holiness can't be exist, why Asbury University exists, why Asbury Theological Seminary exists, and some other places that, I don't know, there's some other places that I know many of you um, attend and are, and are from. He said, I yelled back up. Remember again, I said, no, sir. I said, I'm miserable. Guess what he did? Big smile. He said, oh, remember he says, that's good. And um, then, then I said, um, what, what, "What? what is good about it? He said, oh, he said, Matthew 5, 6, joy. Jesus is talking. And Jesus said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. He said, I made you hungry, and Jesus can fill you. I said, well, that sounds good. So how does that happen? He said, oh, it's easy. (laughs) He said, you just have to surrender everything to Jesus. He said, and in Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, if you search for me with all your heart, surrender everything, you'll find me. And so, being a good little Methodist or even a good little Christian, I said, but I have already done that because I knew the song I surrender all we sing at church all the time, don't no, we? Or it sings all the time, very often at my little church every Sunday, either just as I am or I surrender all with the, with the invitation hymn that sings at the end of the service. So of course I thought I was telling the truth but I wasn't. In my heart that's all I knew, but he knew that wasn't accurate. But instead of saying oh you stupid girl, you know, or no you're, you're crazy, you know, what, whatever no, he didn't put me down at all he knew that I was hungry, and I was probably just, just uh, a project for him, <laughs> maybe. But I'm so, so thankful because he began that day to explain to me things that i had never seen or heard before in God's Word. If it was ever preached, i never heard it. He said, Joy, the Bible talks about two kinds of sin. Now, I want to tell you, this began that day, but he came day after day, because many times it takes quite a while. <laughs> For somebody like me, because I was a little skeptic. I said, I want to believe you, but I need you to prove it to me. For others, uh, some people, it's, it's a lot faster. He began that day, he said, Joy, um, for some people it's faster, but for some of us, we have to kind of walk with Jesus for a while, and it might be several years. And for me, it had been 12 years, because I got saved when I was 12. By now, I'm 24. I got hurt when I was 22, so I missed part of 22. I missed all of 23, and now I'm 24. So um, he said, but for some, it takes a while. But, but the reality of our hearts are the same. And he said, the Bible talks about two kinds of sin. I had never heard that before. He said, when you read the word sins, S I N S, plural, he's talking about, in the context, he's talking about the outward actions of sin, lying, cheating, stealing, the things we do. He said, and we ask Jesus to forgive us, and he does, and we're saying, yay, that's wonderful. I mean, we're going to heaven, that's wonderful. But, he said, but what you're dealing with, is the sin, S-I-N, singular, the sin of your heart. He said the Bible calls it carnality. Sometimes people call it original sin. And he said, you didn't do anything to get that. It's because of what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden in the fall. He said, you were born with that sinful nature. And he said, all of us are. And he said, what that is, is that's that ego and pride in your heart. It's what causes you to be one of the outward actions of sin, like me wanting to be, like, like holding the grudge against in the basketball game. Because on the outside, I wasn't doing anything to her, but inside my heart, that was there. And he said, the Bible says that doesn't go away by anything. There's no way it goes away except by cleansing or sanctification. For God to cleanse your heart. So he said, he, he said, if you've got your, your heart here and it's, got, it's full of joy, meaning not the fruit of the spirit, joy, but yourself your ego, your pride, it's there. If you ask God to wash that away, to cleanse it, to wash it water, then it, it's gone, then, then your heart is empty. And that's when God can fill you. In my mind, I was imagining like a pitcher of water filling you with the fruit of the Spirit from Glade and fire, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And, um, and I thought, well, that's what I want. Because I can tell you, during about that time, like high school for me and into college, the charismatic movement was was going full, you know, great guns. It was going uh, uh, really strong, and and that's not a bad thing. But I had friends at the time that were hungry also, so they would say, "Hey, let's go to the church because they're going to teach people how to speak in tongues or other gifts of the spirit." And I wasn't smart enough; I didn't understand biblically. But I remember thinking, as I saw them live the same way that I did, I thought even if somebody can can a manufacturer and make that happen their hearts are are different i mean they're not are the same as mine and so pastor really helped me understand the difference in the gifts of the spirit which i totally believe in and god wants to give each of us different gifts but what i wanted was even bigger and deeper than that and that was the fruit it's him i wanted him and then he can give me whatever gifts that he wanted to do so again day after day he's trying to help me and, um, and he knows that I didn't really surrender everything, but I still don't know that. So he began to explain to me hymns of the church. He would say, Joy, think about the hymns that you've learned since you were a little girl. Uh, there's so many. The theology in them is really strong and solid. But, for example, we probably all of us know uh, the old of the cross, right? And it says, and was on that old cross, Jesus suffered and died to do two things. To pardon and sanctify me. Saul, cherish, you know the song, don't you? I never saw that. I've sung it many, many times. But I didn't understand there was a difference in pardoning and salvation and sanctifying. Because I didn't know what that meant yet. Because when I read those words before, I just confessed to you. I didn't read the context, which is why I wanted to read that Ephesians chapter. I didn't see what what was around the verse uh, that was talking about washing or purging or cleansing. Rock of Ages says, be sin the Double pure, good, word. Say two things. Save from wrath and make me pure. And he began to say, he said, Joy, what happens when you ask God to cleanse your heart and, and to be holy, to, to do holiness unto the Lord, to be holy? He said, the word holy just means to be set apart completely. God is holy. God is totally set apart from any of us. But for us to be set apart um, for only him, 100%, all, all in for it, Jesus. And um, um, he said that 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 is what God does. First, He purifies our heart. In my brain, I think the two Bs for me to remember: He purifies and He empowers, gives us power, the anointing to then witness to other people. So that when we do share our testimonies, whatever that is, other people, um, God's anointing. In, we're not being selfish. We're not wanting people to pat me on the back and say, "Oh, you did a great job," or "You're so awesome." No, it's Jesus that's awesome. And um. So, so the hymns of the church helped me. But let me tell you one other thing that, that really helped me. Because I, in Sunday school, growing up, you know, you read about the disciples of Jesus. And when the Sunday school teacher says, you know, what is a disciple of Jesus? The, answer, the simple answer is a follower of Jesus, right? You know, we know that. And that is true. He said, but Joy, look at the disciples, the 12s, before Pentecost in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then look at them after Pentecost in the book of Acts. He said, Joy, the disciples were very selfish. They were carnal. And ladies, I'm just telling you, I never saw that. I mean, I didn't think about it. I just, I just honestly confess, I didn't. And so he began to share, and I'll just do a few, just a few examples. He said, they're always looking out for number one. They, they, they wanted to be important and religious and for people to think that they're important. So he said, remember when Jesus starts talking about the cross? And when uh, but he, but he talks about his kingdom, they jump in, and one of them says, Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I, can I just stand right on your right hand side? You know, like, I'm going to be the hot dog right next to Jesus. And then another one jumps in right after that and says, Oh, well, okay, he's over on the right. Jesus, can I stand right on your left? And then I never saw this before. But if you will read the text, it says, The next verse says, The other ten were jealous because those other two jumped in first. Everybody wanted to be the important one. They were looking out for themselves. But I never saw that before. He said, Joy, they were over-impressed with money. I thought, well, how did that happen? And he said, think about it. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, remember, and he said, Jesus, I said, not for eternal life, and Jesus said, sell everything and follow me. And the Bible says he went away sad. I've heard that preached before a lot. What I didn't see is what happened next. The disciples, if you read the text. The disciples got really mad at Jesus and said, Jesus, are you nuts? Are you crazy? This guy has a lot of money and we can use his money for the ministry, you know, for all for good things. Like they weren't seeing it with spiritual eyes. Remember when the, the woman took her um uh, the her hair, the alabaster box that was very expensive with oil and broke it and he took her hair and anointed Jesus. And the disciples said, Jesus, are you nuts? That cost so much money and we could use that. They were just impressed with that. Jesus wasn't, but they were. They didn't have spiritual power. Remember when people would come and need healing, deliverance, um, salvation—just just all kinds of needs. Well, the, the disciples just pushed them away. They couldn't do anything with it, or they would send them to Jesus. The little children—they pushed away and just said, "He doesn't have time for those little snotty-nosed kids." What did Jesus do? No, Jesus says no, puts them on his knee. You know, let the children come to me. There were so many. Another was that they uh, knocked, uh, they had spirit of grudging for forgiveness. Remember, they said Jesus, how long have we got to forgive people? And that's when Jesus said seventy times seven. That means you keep on and on and on forgiving. But they just that wasn't in their in their mindset or worldview. And they all said, "Oh, Jesus, we're going to be with you all the way to the end." But they, in the end, tucked their tails and ran. And Jesus, Peter had three opportunities to make it up, and he still blew it. Didn't you know? They all fled. That was in the gospel. That's over before their hearts are purified. Yes, they're obviously what we would say saved because they're following Jesus. They're a follower of his. But look at those same men after Acts chapter 2. They're radically different. Suddenly don't um, have to be number one. James. Another James becomes the head of the church and Peter and the others go and do other things. They're not over impressed with money. Instead they pull all their money together and you see all throughout the book of Acts which is the actions of the apostles. is what that what that means, after Pentecost, then, then they're helping the poor. Um, they, they're sharing. They're, they're not selfish at all with that. You see immediately their spiritual power. It's not them, but it's Jesus in them. So that really, right after chapter 2, you got chapter 3, where the blonde, the crippled man, the lame man, is at the church or the temple. You know, he's a beggar. And the Bible says he has never walked from the time he came out of his mother's womb. It doesn't tell you in chapter 3, but if you go to chapter 4, we see the Bible says this man was more than 40 years old. More than 40. He's never taken a step. He's there. His family brings him, hoping that the religious people, as they walk into the, te- the temple, will have compassion on him and give him a quarter or a dime or a dollar. Uh, shekel, money back in, but but that's what he's hoping for. But remember when Peter and John are coming into the church to pray, right after right after Pentecost, Peter looks and it says you know what we don't have any money silver and gold got nothing but what we do have we'll give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth rise and walk." and that's when immediately the man was healed and the Bible says he, he uh, was lifted up and he's walking and leaping and praising God and everybody saw him walking and praising God and verse 10 of that chapter says they all knew that he was the same man that had sat there at the gate or the door of the, trip, the, the temple. And it was they were filled with wonder and amazement, the Bible says. Um, later, when the Sanhedrin is hateful to them, they forgive them. It wasn't like before in the Gospels. When Stephen is being stoned to death, they're throwing rocks and blood and guts are everywhere and Stephen is dying. They forgive him, just like Peter did, or forgive the, the bad guys. And in the end, they're not tucking their tails and, and running. They are all willing to die for him and ultimately did And so my preacher said, Joy, what made the difference in those men's lives? It was the Holy Spirit. It was Pentecost because the Bible says their hearts were purified and they were empowered. Now they weren't trying to, to talk about Jesus or testify for themselves. There was power because it was God knowing they weren't selfish. And more and more people began, the whole book of Acts talks about the thousands of people that began to get saved and come into the kingdom. The first missionary journeys began. I mean, the world turned upside down after the resurrection and after the Holy, well, not just the resurrection. Jesus, when he was about to go back to heaven, he told them, he said, boys, I'm about to leave you. and I know they couldn't understand that, but he said, but when I do go, I'm going to send somebody else. He's going to be just like me. He's going to guide you into all truth. So back in chapter one, they actually saw him go up. Um, and in 1 verse 8, I think uh, it is, Jesus said, uh, You'll receive power when the Holy Ghost comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then later in that chapter is when Jesus ascended back. And then in chapter 2, Jesus came just as he said he would, and the Holy Spirit came on them. And, and, and so that, that illustration really, really helped me a lot. I thought, I never saw that in the disciples. Then here was the turning point day for me. I'm laying there, months have passed, and the preacher comes in, and he said, he knew me well enough by then. okay, so, because he said something kind of negative, it was actually very negative, he said, Joy, I'm going to tell you what your problem is, except he was looking down at me, Joy, I'm going to tell you what your problem is. He said, you are just double-minded. And ladies, I didn't look put that now. It sounded bad. Like, a, like an insult. Like it didn't sound like a compliment. And it's not. It is an insult. And it's not a compliment. In James chapter 1, the Bible says that an unsta- a, 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 a double-minded man or woman is unstable in all their ways. They're just wishy-washy. Up and down. Like the waves in the ocean. It is up There's nothing steady. It's, it's not solid. It's just wavy. Up and down. And he said, you have just enough of Jesus to make you miserable. What does that mean? He said, Well, you've got one foot over here with Jesus because you're saved, and that's great. Yay. Yes. Okay? But you've got another foot over here in the world, and you're straddling the fence, and that's why it's painful for you. That's why you've been hungry. That's why you've been searching. And that's why you, you're hoping for the hope that God can put it into your heart. You can use that word. So, that day, the Spirit, I'm sure, just did it through him, but I realized that I had lied to him all those months before when I said that I had given Jesus everything. I surrender all. Because I realized maybe I had given him 98 or 99% or even 97, whatever, but I kept that 1 or 2% to decide who I dated or what job I took or what I did with my money that I worked for. I mean, that was kind of all I had at that point. Um, And so um, I, I realized that I had not been honest and I, I said, I see it, I see it, but I said, I don't, I don't know what to do. And he said, Oh, here I come he big smile. Oh, it's easy. <laughs> here he comes again. It's so easy. He said, It actually is, but I didn't believe him at the time. He said, Two people have a job, and I'm saying that to us here tonight before we pray in just a little while. Two people have a job. We have a job, and God has a job. Now so this is a good job. This is good. He said, Your job is to completely surrender everything, to give God everything, and to trust Him to do the work. Because he said, you'll never be able to do it on your own. And I knew that that was true, my sisters, because I had tried from the time I was 12, for 12 years, to be good enough to do the right things. And um, that was not that, that was no good. And um, he said, so that's our job, surrender and trust. That really sounds easy, because you don't have to do do anything. He said, but God's job is to do the work. In Second Thessalonians chapter five, verses twenty-three and twenty-four, Paul's writing again to the church at Thessalonica. In twenty-four, he pray. He says, uh, "The God of peace sanctify you wholly." And he's praying. He said, "I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until coming of our Lord Jesus." But here's verse twenty-four. I love it. He says, "Faithful is He who calls you, who also will do it." He said, "Joy, God is who does the work." You know that's why you're miserable in your heart. But God is in place of hope, and he's the only one that can cleanse your heart and take away the carnality, the sinful nature that is there. That's what he means. He said, look at all the all the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament. We just did one tonight, the first chapter of, uh, of Ephesians. But if you look at all the letters, the salutations every time are going to say, dear, or to the brethren at, to the saints at Colossae, to the uh, believers at, um, it's talking to believers, but later in the, in the book or the letter, he's saying God wants to do something more in your life. He wants to give you a second blessing, to do a second work in your life beyond salvation. And I saw Paul saying that in our Ephesians um, chapter there. So, so that, that was the turning point day for me. And I, I saw it. it then in my heart. I'm just saying to you ladies, in my heart I thought, I don't know really how to have faith. I could say to God, I'm really sorry, I want to give you everything. It's not just a confession, but it's saying I give everything, my past, my present, my future, and I didn't know that I had a future. I, I can see that happening, but then then what if I don't feel any different or nothing happens? And he said that's where the faith part comes in, to trust God to do the work. So that night, you know, he went back to his house. Every day that precious pastor had come. And so that night I'm laying there just because I you know I couldn't move. And it was hot, summer, it was actually camp meeting time in um, July, it was July 31st, I'm sorry, this is July the, the 16th, sorry, July 31st is important in a couple minutes, but July the 16th, and, and again, we, we didn't even have air conditioning, and we, we, I grew up on a dairy farm, so the windows were up, and I could hear the cows just chewing their cud, you know, out of the pasture in the middle of the night, and I thought, I don't know how that I can ever know how to trust. And this sounds so simple, but I thought maybe I'm supposed to say it tonight for somebody. So I'll, I'll talk fast. Um, I remember being a lifeguard. And this had to be from the Lord because it just came out of nowhere. But um, lifeguard and teaching children how to swim. And um, so, you know, you're just talking babies. And so you teach it at the beginning of swimming lessons to hold their breath. And then how to bobo And then how to keep. You know, you're trying to teach them to float and all this. Well, you're at one end of the pool where it's shallow. And, of course, you're going to hold on to the children. But over at the deep end, the the people like us, the grown-ups, the older kids and the grown-ups, are diving and jumping off the the diving board and just splashing and having a great time. Remember all this? So as a little bitty kid, I remember wanting to do this too. I thought, I'm going to jump off the board. And they all would want to do that. But we all know that if they had jumped off the board and you didn't catch them, they're going to die. They're going to drown right there. So at the end of the swimming lessons, after two weeks, when all the parents and grandparents come to see what the little kids can do, how long they can hold their breath, whatever, <laughs> you let them go, we'll all walk around, and so as the lifeguard or the teacher, swim, I'm swimming out into the deep end, and so I let them be at the board, and I'm holding my hands up to catch them, and they're going to get to go off the board one time, and that's like a big show for everybody to see them, and it's just going to be so fun, and so this is what happens. I'm treading water because it's really deep and I'm holding my hands up because I'm not going to let the baby's face go under the water and you watch the child get out on the edge of the, the board and it's only one meter. What's that? Three feet and three inches, I think is a meter. It's one meter away but it looks like to them it's a million miles away, <laughs> right? And so they go out on the edge and then you know, say, "Okay, oh, hey jump, I'm going to catch you. You can trust me but then they back up. And they want to. They can almost taste it. They just want I watch them go back and forth. Then I think I'm going to drown because I think it's The You know, they just they're trying. And so I know. I just think if you will just take one step, just one step, then they can't do anything else. They've done their part. They can't flap their wings and fly back up. I've got to catch them. And I will. And they're going to want to do it over and over again and all those kind of things. And that sounds so simple, but it was like God saying to me, Joy, why don't you take that step and just trust me? Um, I can handle it. I mean, you know, I, I have your best interest at heart. Everything my little preacher had told me, and so I just didn't share with you. It was that simple. It really was easy on my part, and that I truly did. I didn't have an altar like we have here. That's if you're not a camp meeting person, maybe you don't even know. But a lot of people don't know. But the altar is a special place for us to come and pray. And the old, the old, tiny folks would say, "Lay it all on the altar." In, in old-fashioned, I mean, I'll say it too, lay it on the altar. Bible says, whatever touches the altar, God sanctifies that gift as we lay it there. I couldn't physically do that because I can't move. I'm just, just laying there paralyzed. But I did give the Lord everything. And so, July 16th is a glory day for me because suddenly all those people that I held the grudge against, it's like suddenly there was so much love. I thought, I want them to know more about Jesus than me. And I thought, this is crazy. This not natural this has to be supernatural because i tried to be good enough to not feel the way i was feeling for so so long suddenly the love joy and peace was there it was just it was glorious it was wonderful and in my heart i was bouncing off the walls even though i physically couldn't move but then guess what jesus did again two weeks later and now we're just the 31st of july near near my home was a tiny camp meeting compared to indian springs Tiny. I mean, I'm telling you that the main tabernacle is about the size of this section, or one of these sections. It's very small, um, very far out in the country. Not nearly as many cottages and or cabins as here. Just a handful, maybe maybe seven or eight. But but it was camp meeting And my family always went there. But another guess what? Another Asbury person. But another Indian Springs man. Tom Barrett was going to be the evangelist for the weekend. I had never seen or heard of Tom Barrett. And at that point, I can't move because, I mean, I'm not going to get to go to camp meeting like normal because I can't move. Daddy is, is the man that I'm talking about. I didn't know Alan and Beth yet, they i like brother and sister me now, but I didn't know at the time. The point is, this precious man um, just trusted Jesus. And he, my friend told him about what had happened, so I thought, about my back, about what was happening, I thought that he would be like other people that just said, oh, Joy, we're so sorry this happened, too bad, so sad. Because nobody knows what to say in a situation like that when there's no hope, according to the medical doctors. None. Zero. No hope. So I, I understand that because, they, you know, some people would even say they would come to the house, and even from church, would come and say, you know. Well, we'll come back to see you. And sometimes people might say, "We'll be praying for you." And I'm not saying they didn't pray. I'm just saying to you that nobody prayed for me out loud. And I understand the line, because you think, "What if nothing happens?" And it probably won't. And you know, people are negative about it. But so, so when my friend told Brother Tom what had happened, and I'd never seen this man again, he was older. He was like a grandpa kind of age, too. You know, to me at the time. Um, but he was the evangelist that was coming, and so. He, he, you know, instead of, instead of responding like the other people, I'm so sorry this happened, what? he looked down at me and he said, well, very humbly, oh my goodness, so soft-spoken, just so gentle, so, so sweet, not loud, like you think of an evangelist preaching like radio, he was just so gentle and so spirit-filled, so precious. He looked down and he said, well, have you ever asked God to heal you? And first, to be real honest, I just thought maybe he was a quack. Because I was in so much pain, and I wasn't thinking like that. But, but he He wasn't. He was so precious, and before I, my brain was trying kind to of think, how I responded to you him. Know? Before I could, let me tell you what he said, and this has helped me to pray for others. And even tonight, maybe someone wants to come for a healing prayer. He said, honey, because you just met me, honey, you probably didn't remember my name, honey, I do not understand healing. He said, I don't understand why some people are healed and some are not. And I listened. I thought, he's not a quack. He's not a nut. He's honest. He's truthful. He said, I don't know why we come to church and pray for somebody and maybe they die next week. He said, I don't understand that. He said, but I just know that everywhere I can find in the Bible, that they brought people to Jesus, he healed them. And he said, and the Bible says in Hebrews, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He said, in the open book of James, he says, call the elders and pray. So I'll just want you to know I'm willing to ask for you. And I said, but the doctors had given no hope. And <laughs> And he said, well, but our God is a God of hope. And do you know that he, he prayed for me? I'm just confessing to you, there was not expectation on my part. There wasn't. I was in so much pain. And I'd laid there for so long, and there was no hope of future stuff for me at all. But he just, I, he didn't even ask permission. Like, I didn't say, be and bow. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a loud prayer. He was just talking to Jesus like I'm talking to you. So simple. And um, somewhere in the prayer, somewhere in the prayer, I remember him saying these words. This is all I heard. Matthew eighteen nineteen. She said, Father, because of Matthew eighteen nineteen, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said to his disciples, if two of you are on earth touching anything, it will be done with my father. in heaven.' Jesus said that. So, in the prayer, he said, Father, because of Matthew 18:19, I agree with joy that it's done. Now, I'm confessing to everybody under this tabernacle, I was not in agreement. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even know what that meant. I'm mean, just being honest. I mean, I, but I, I couldn't imagine that. But when he said those words, I don't know what else he said. I know he finally probably said amen to the prayer. But when he said those words, it's done, I was just aware that suddenly I didn't feel anything. It was like a numb feeling. So was it wasn't the pain, and it was so, so radically different that I thought, I think I'm asleep and I'm dreaming. And so I, oh, nobody ever touches me because it was so wonderful, wonderful to not be in pain. But then the next thing I heard, I'm, again, I'm sure he finished the prayer, the next thing that I heard him say was, well, did anything happen? And so I, I I did not know my husband yet later when I met him and other people said, Well, I've never known anybody was healed. Did you do something like wiggle your toes or something? I don't know. I was just so stupid. I don't know why I didn't do something like that. But I just jumped up. And so I did jumping to I could do everything. It's like a gymnastics routine. I did everything I used to to do. Jesus healed me. I had I had spiritual hope a couple of weeks before, but then I had physical hope um, you know because the lord um really just touched me and you know i could do anything everything i could the next morning i ran a couple of miles the next week i ran in a 10k race that's 6.2 miles i mean it was like nothing ever happened there were no cell phones then and so and you know how it is at indian springs or if you have been here before before cell phones there are no phones here <laughs> so that week i drove down because the herns were here at camp meeting um, because it Camp Meeting time, and and i was so thankful to be able to come and tell them the lord had healed me it blew all the doctors away. Um, many people came to the Lord and got saved because of it. I'm so, so thankful because if I had not been healed, I would never, I couldn't stand here, but I would never have met any of you. I mean, I'm so, so, so grateful for that. But I always say, I, maybe the reason God healed me, I don't know, I'll never, maybe know why, so heaven, oh, then maybe it won't matter. I really kind of think that maybe the reason God did is because I can share with others what he's done in my heart because the physical part is not the big thing that God did. I'm so thankful, but that, that's not eternal. But what really mattered is the big healing and the hope that was brought for me, and the hope of his calling. His calling is like his will for us. What he wants from us is for us to just love and worship and serve him, but to be able to tell others um, about who he is and what he's done. And so I thought maybe, maybe that's why I was healed, so that I can, can share the hope of a clean heart with other people. Um, because according to the word, not that it, maybe it's not everybody's paralyzed. Very few maybe are. But according to the word of God, all of us have a heart like mine, and God's desire is for us to surrender that 100%, all the way, um, instead of that 98 or 99%. But everything to be clean before Him, so that He can use us. The whole goal of that is so that we can understand the hope of his calling, what he really, how he wants to use us and the different gifts he wants to give us after we've surrendered and he fills us with himself.